Hello, and welcome to a classically cool episode of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your cinema mechanics, Brent Mosier and Travis Santana. Today, we'll be reviewing 1968's Bullet as the third installment in our Engine Power trilogy. We'll jump into five-point inspection with Mirror Mirror, The Chase, Anti-Establishment, Real Human Being, and San Francisco Treat. But before we do, let's check in on the shop. Mr. May, I, I completely understand. I'm I'm sorry. I, I'm I'm not sure we we blew it. Uh, we're, no, no, no. We're not trying to evade responsibility by any means. But here, give me a chance to call up my business partner and and find out exactly what happened. Hey, Brett. What's up, buddy? Uh, hey man, so it seems like we have a big problem with the, uh, with the commercial. Ooh, uh, so you, you viewed the rough cut, huh? Uh, look, I, I know it runs a little bit long, and it's not as elegant as, as I wanted it to be, but I think that... Oh, wait, 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 that's, that's, that's not... Well, here's the thing, I know you're the driving shots, they didn't 100% translate like they thought they would, so... I, hey, listen, hey, stop. I just got off the phone with a very pissed off mayor. Yeah, apparently he's having some engine issues with his bins right after we did some work on it. Oh, that crooked son of a bitch. He thinks he's Steve McQueen. He probably drove it way too hard. Yeah, I know. I agree with you, but he's making a lot of threats. He said he'd personally officiate our public crucifixion. Jesus. Yeah, literally. He assured me he won't suffer the consequences of our incompetence. And even if there wasn't any, he's rather certain he can prove negligence on our part. Well, damn. I guess it's time to talk to a lawyer, but first, it's time to review Bullet, and time starts now. A San Francisco cop is handpicked by an opportunistic senator to protect a key witness for 48 hours. Should Frank Bullitt succeed, the witness's testimony will help take down the Chicago-based crime operation known as the organization, but things aren't always as they seem. It's up to Bullitt to get to the bottom of a string of murders while working against a government official who's more concerned about perception than getting to the truth. Alright Travis, I would love to know- we're gonna get into some five points, obviously, but before we do I would love to know your quick diagnostic of 1968's well, I guess we should preference. I cut myself off here. We were not supposed to review Bullet oh, yeah, this that's week. A good it was, point. <laughs> yeah, we were supposed to do Vanishing Point, I think, which is also from the 60s. The only problem is, uh, apparently, I don't know if there's a distribution problem or what. We could not find Bullet anywhere. And it's odd that you can't even find no, it no, to like, buy point. or rent it. Sorry, Vanishing Point. You can't even find it to rent it. When I was looking up cost of DVDs, like they're ranging from like sixty to seventy dollars for a DVD, a Blu-ray of, of Vanishing Point. So I don't know if it's caught in some kind of distribution hell or, or what's going on with that. But Vanishing Point was was nowhere to be found. So I might have to find a copy. Maybe we'll do a special edition runoff because I still really want Travis to watch Vanishing Point. But uh, we had to call an audible and decided to re review Bullet, which I think actually wound up being very good for this trilogy uh, at the end of the day. So. Now with that aside, Travis, lay it on me. Quick diagnostic, 1968's bullet. What'd you feel? 
Uh, I know lately we've been tipping our hand very early and uh, it's probably gonna be difficult for me not to do that, but I'll, I'll say it in a cute way that might be a little too inside. Uh, I'll reference one of our favorite movies in Bruges. Uh, I have a feeling mm -hmm. that you're going to be more of a Brendan Gleeson and I'm going to be more of a Colin Farrell and Bullet is going to be all the old buildings. <laughs> I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about, uh, but yeah. Um, yeah, so what I'll say, because uh, I don't want to go too much into it until we get to five points. I think this movie is much more iconic than it is good. Uh, I think it's it's going to run into that trouble of this is my first time seeing it. I don't. How old were you when you saw it first, Brett? Uh, I probably for the the first time I saw it, I was probably in my late teens. Was the first okay. time I saw Bullet. I assume that I assume that you're going to like it much more than me, um, and I I would assume that part of the reason would be I saw it as a 36 year old for the first time, you have some residual memories. So I'm making assumptions on my part. Uh, so I'll, I'll give it over to you. What are your opening thoughts of it? I think if this movie were made the way that it's made today, it would be considered an art house cop movie. Um, and that it is not the, the traditional like cop, like going after the bad guy type movie. There's a lot of just beautiful cinematography and shots. I think some of the underlying themes of the movie don't really fall into what the modern like cop genre is. Uh, it's also much like drive. I think it's a slow burn. Like there's, there's not a ton of action. In fact, it's funny when you look at the promotional material or like the DVD covers and stuff like that for this movie, it's Steve McQueen in the, the classic turtleneck, which he doesn't start wearing until at least halfway through the movie, if not later than that. And then it's him firing his revolver, which also isn't pulled out until what the last 15 minutes of the movie is the first time Steve McQueen has a gun in his hand. So, and that's to say that there is the, in terms of action and firearm usage, there's the first, what, five minutes of the movie, the opening sequence where uh, Ross is getting away. I believe that's his name, right? Yes. Johnny Ross. So Ross is getting away. Then there's a long period of time where we don't see anything again until Ross is murdered via shotgun. And then we don't see a gun again until the very end of the movie with the airport chase. So I'm like for a, again, during modern standards, a cop movie, there's very little action or firearm usage in this movie, which I think is interesting. I, I definitely noticed that. Um, I, and yes, it's a slow burn in the way that drive is. And I, I think the big difference and the reason I, you know, tip my hand, I enjoyed drive much more than I did this movie, this movie, when it erupts into violence, it it just can't successfully achieve violence um, in any sort of convincing way. I mean, that that hotel, uh, you know, shotgun blast where, you know, where they kick in the door. If you read that on paper, it sounds exciting, much like the way the, the hotel scene and drive is. It's just the technology didn't exist. And even something like we reviewed previously, The Professionals, I enjoyed its action much more because it's easier to kind of fake action out in a wide open field or in a canyon. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're uptight inside of a hotel room, it it can't help but look cheesy to me. Well, and, you know, I'm, I'm basing this off of memory, but if I remember, granted, you know, watch this movie in the last two days, it still suffered from that classic like pre-Jaws era blockbuster where like if a guy gets shot, it's not like he just falls back. It's the they jump up and kind of grab the wound and then collapse. And it's like it's almost comical the way like 
you know, oh, I've been hit. And it's just like, that's, that's not, I don't think that's how anybody would respond to being shot. Um, so, and I think that, again, that winds up kind of suffering with this movie when you've seen so much from the, you know, 50 plus years after this movie was released, things that, you know, the action's gotten so much better. You go back and it kind of takes it out because it's like, oh, this isn't supposed to be a comedy, but that's how a comedy would portray violence these days. Like if you're doing a cop movie spoof, you would do the whole like, you know, the Wilhelm scream with the and just completely over exaggerated, um, you know, and wounds. Yeah. Now, um, did you want to jump into five points? I was curious what you meant by mirror mirror. I don't know what order you want to go in. <laughs> yeah. You know, I like to I like to I like to hide them. I like to hide them, Travis. I had a um, prediction, but I don't, I don't think I'm right. I, is it in reference to the rearview mirror in the car? Not just that, just throughout the movie. I think this okay. movie, again, when I say it, it's almost art house because of the way it's it's shot, is they use mirrors so much in this movie to add depth to scenes, where it's instead of it just being a shot of a room, you get a shot of Steve McQueen, and then there's a mirror, and in the reflection of the mirror, you see his fling sitting on the bed, and it gives you depth as to the entire scene that you're looking at. You're not, like, it doesn't feel like you're in a setting where it's like they built three walls, and you're looking at it. It feels like this was filmed in an actual 3D space, and I think that goes into just... In general, this movie does a great job. We, we brought it up in a review of the player. Like, this movie feels lived in. I think another great scene is when Steve McQueen shows up at the senator's house. There's tons of conversations with socialites going on, and you're just kind of overhearing these conversations with Steve McQueen. Like, it's a great way of establishing, like, oh, this is the, the upper echelon, the elite of San Francisco, without having Steve McQueen having to have an unnatural conversation with an old woman about roses. Like, he's just kind of overhearing these conversations, and it gives you a great idea of, like, okay— we know where he is. It gives us a great idea of whose Chambers is, the kind of people that he, you know, hangs out, what his flock is, without having to do something quite as nose on as, oh, Steve McQueen is going to make some Chambers. I see you have a lot of rich friends here or something like it's just I love yeah, when like, a movie oh, is does that, that. Jameson, the owner of the uh, the local power company over there. Yeah, yeah that kind of shitty drop dialogue. Mm hmm. Exactly. Well, so yeah. and just yeah. Hmm? What are you saying? No, just ahead. it just continues on with it just and you're talking about the rear view mirror i think it was a great shot too like it's another one where you can't necessarily get both of the the goons in the shot with the the drive so you have the driver taking up the majority of the shot during the chase which is important because he's the driver he should be the main focus but you still get the rear view mirror which allows you to see the the gunner is still there like he's still part of what's going on in this scene but he might not be the focus but he's also not forgotten and i also thought i didn't realize robert duvall was in this movie yes. which go figure he was in god in 60 seconds so we managed to accidentally do a robert duvall trilogy this week or this, this go round. but i loved at the very beginning when uh ross is driving around and all you see is the the mouth and the cigar of the cabbie and then he winds up being kind of an informant and winds up being like he talks to mcqueen later on and basically be uh, is his guide you know so again it's all these like little things where it's like i just i love when they do shots like that where again it allows the the place to feel lived and then even in a lot of the shots beyond the mirror 
like when the ambulance is driving up it's a beautifully framed shot but like you have this motorcycle in the foreground which at like there's nothing to do with there's no we never come back to the motorcycle but it just feels like most of the shots in this movie are through something where it, the movie almost feels like voyeuristic you know like where we're not just watching a set piece by set piece you're actually in the environment watching bullet as he interacts with everything around him and i just i think those movies are so much more successful than the you know the set piece or god forbid today just the green screen where it's like okay we're gonna build a green screen and if you have something in the foreground it's because we placed it there or digitally placed it there to try and make it feel more three-dimensional when it's not so i really like that you keep up you keep bringing up three-dimensional and it doesn't feel like they built three walls and you're shooting into a set it's because 100 percent of this movie is on location did you know that there is not one mm -hmm. soundstage used for this movie, and you can 100% tell. I mean, I, I thought it was crazy that they would just film in an actual hospital uh, with much of the extras just being staff of the hospital. Like, I can see why that's never going to happen again. Um, but I, I can't recall a movie that, like you said, never once does it feel like I said, even the apartment, and I think they even comment when they bring the witness there or uh, kind of how shitty it is. He's, like, surprised mm -hmm. that it's so shitty. But, like... I'm, it, it's funny to see those kind of places on screen because usually everything is is classed up. If it is location shooting, it's, you know, Bruce Wayne's penthouse in Chicago. Whereas this, you know, you open up the drapes and you're looking at the freeway. Yeah. Well, and it goes back to like, so back in the day you you shot and now everybody's just emulating what these shots are but they're emulating them in those sound stages in these sets in the green screens where it's like you're just getting a bastardization of what you like again a lived in space like oh remember bullet bullet was so influential like that we want to replicate that apartment but we're just going to build three walls and we're going to we're going to try and make it look like that's like there's you just you can tell like it doesn't matter how good your set builder is you can tell when something is lived in and when it's something is like we're trying to make it look distressed as opposed to like, no, it's distressed because this thing has been lived in for 30 years by people who didn't give a shit about the, the space that they were in. Yeah. And to your point today, um, that apartment set, you know, when you look out and you see the freeway, that that would just be green screen beyond the window. And then they would just digitally insert a highway. And it may look amazing, but it, it's that kind of uncanny valley. I don't know if there's ever going to be a time where the human eye is completely fooled by that stuff. Mm hmm. Yep. And God forbid it be it'd be bad uh, green screen. And then it really takes you out because then your focus is just like that window was that wasn't real. <laughs> yeah, this feels like I'm watching Star Wars Episode two. Yep. So as we talk about, you know, real and all that, let's let's talk about the chase because it is, you know, a a Hollywood staple, a classic. It's referred many, many times. We, we knew we were going to have to talk about it when we reviewed this movie. Um, judging by the open that you wrote, I think that you have some strong opinions about the chase. <laughs> so I would love to know what those are. Um, first, let me say, if I were watching this in 1968, I would absolutely be blown away. Um, even, even through today's lens, there were several shots that I really appreciated. Um, when they, we've got the the camera in like the back seat of the car shooting out the windshield uh, as we're going down the streets of San Francisco. I did get a great sensation of speed. Uh, I, you know, in research, I saw that they got up to like a hundred miles an hour. Now I'm sure that was out on the open road. Um, mm -hmm. But 
as much as we like the fast movies, I don't think I've really believed a car chase in that movie since probably the first movie. Like the the highway at the end where, you know, Vince is on the truck and, and gets trapped by the trucker. That's the only mm-hmm. scene I can really think of that I actually felt like people were driving cars out on the highway. Um, yeah. So for, for as much as, hey, new action is better in a lot of ways it is, I'll take the bullet chase over most of the actual Fast and Furious stuff. Uh, because, again, it just feels like I'm watching a video game. I think the problem with this movie is that chase, I think I timed it starts at like a little over an hour into the movie and I mm-hmm. paused it and I'm like, here we go, you know. And then I realized that there was still like another hour after that. And so, yeah, I guess I don't have as much of a problem with the chase as the the movie around the chase. Like the mm-hmm. chase is the the meat of the sandwich and the bread just feels rotten. Like the I know you said it's a slow burn, but if it's a slow burn, it's... The fuse goes out a few times and has to be relit before we get to the chase. And and I'll agree with that. My biggest problem, and we'll I'll get more to the chase, but just while we're talking about that, I think that for it being a movie about a detective and figuring out what's going on, I feel like the detective side of it comes very fast and I won't say loose, but just very quickly at the end. Like all of a sudden, like, oh yeah, this is a movie where he has to solve what's going on. There's now been two murders. He's going to look at the passport. Like all of that happens very quickly and then gets them to the airport. And it's, again, I know this movie's older and I think, you know, movies past are definitely going to take influence and do it better. But that was my biggest complaint is like, you said, we get up to the chase, the chase happens. And then shortly, you know, basically we get to the point where he finds out that Ross isn't actually Ross and that, you know, was it Riker? His, um, his wife has been killed too. And then all of a sudden that's our Rennick. Sorry. Rennick is him and his, he finds out he's Rennick and Rennick's wife has been killed. They get the suitcases and all of a sudden now it's a detective movie. He gets through the detective stuff really quick. They get to the airport. They're able to, to figure everything out. It just happens so fast from like, I would have loved a little bit more of the detective, like feel of detective, kind of planted throughout the movie because I, I did I feel like the first half of the movie was was the protection side of it like the witness and figuring out what's going on and then the back half was like okay let's make this kind of a detective movie yeah and not only that even before the back half of the movie um I, I love seeing Robert Duvall reappear and, and get a little more chance of being in the movie but does Robert Duvall just memorize the the routes of all of his passengers. Like, I just thought it was very convenient. And again, I want to feel like Bullet is a a great detective, not just a cool dude in a turtleneck. But he's able to track the guy's movements just because Robert Duvall remembers them. And then Robert Duvall has to be the one that tells him, hey, you made a long distance call. Well, how do you know? Well, he used a lot of change. I'm like, it seems like Robert Duvall is the one that's figuring this out at that point. (laughs) You need to hire him. Yeah, like, you're wasting your life as a cabbie, uh, you know, Bobby D. So, uh, but yeah, I also the, love... the chase, it's... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was saying, the other side characters that come up, like, Eddie is fantastic. I Eddie is ridiculous looking, and I think that's why I love Eddie so much, but he comes up like... It's also kind of an interesting side where, like, Eddie, you can tell is... He's part of the, the CD underbelly. But when it's all said and done, Bolt's like, okay, what can I do for you, Eddie? Well, I've got a guy on the inside. He's got three years. What's it for? Like, you see kind of like that... It's almost more interesting to that, like that little, oh, there's a little like give and take between how Bullet achieves his, you know, the end of his goal. And like, I think this is the start 
of more of that renegade cop where it's like it's not always necessarily by the rules if it means i can get my guy at the end of the day like what's more important you know is that a guy who he bought stolen goods and he's got three years okay i it, that's an innocent crime i can help get him out if it means i can get a murderer off the street like it's interesting to see kind of those seeds being planted as to what the modern renegade cop would wind up being where they have that informant. And I'm sure there's stuff that happened before this, but Bullet is, again, because it's one of those quintessential Hollywood, like this is to me where you really start to see like what a what that renegade cop looks like. Yeah, and I mean, down to the city, I think the natural extension is, is Dirty Harry. Like I felt the inspirations of Dirty Harry all over this movie. Mm-hmm. Well, if you want to talk about inspirations, like again, going back to Drive, the first movie we did for this trilogy, like you can feel so much of like, the the limited dialogue was derived so much of trying to make Ryan Gosling's the driver kind of emulate Steve McQueen's bullet like driver might not have been a cop but the way that he acted was very much a a bullet since you know emulating him yeah and I mean it's no surprise that in the in the chase and drive he's he happens to steal a Mustang for that job mm-hmm. uh because yeah i felt uh the chase scene in drive definitely was was doing its best bullet impersonation yep and uh, it's it is you're watching stuff kind of build onto it because you can do much different shots like i think there's a lot of shots that you see in modern stuff even if they've got a rig and it's not cg where they're able to mount that camera you know at the the front corner of the vehicle where it show like it it shines up and you can kind of see the driver and like it, it feels like speed and all that where bullet it does it's just a very it feels like a real chase because it was a real chase right like again there's no cgi they actually raced that through the city and into the countryside and i also wonder if part of the reason why this chase feels so so real is the change in settings you know i think there's a lot of of chases you know drive didn't do it but a lot of chases i think just they wind up being like through the city real quick or like through two parts of the city where it's like this is like it went through the city and then into the countryside and then wound up like the finale was off the highway like there was a lot it actually felt like a chase like they were chasing them through environments as opposed to just like fast cars zipping around a city well and and to go back to like fast and furious uh you know the the, i can't remember which one it's in but when they're on the plane runway that seems to be 84 (laughs) miles long like at not one moment do you feel like you're in a real environment and like you said with this not only do we know we're in a real environment it feels like uh, again, you're you're driving through the heart of the city, but you know when you're doing a chase at 90 miles an hour, you're in a different part of town rather quickly. And the the, the chase I think is almost 11 minutes long, and you feel like there's been 11 minutes of driving, and not just that they closed down three city blocks and just drove around that over and over again, and with <laughs> editing, kind of hid where they actually were. Right. And we haven't even so. mentioned the fact that McQueen is doing. Uh, a bulk of the driving and i guess the telltale sign is if the rear view mirror is up where you can see the driver's face of course if it's it's mcqueen when it's pointed down that's when they're hiding the stunt driver yeah and it's it's interesting because at this point steve mcqueen i think was a professional race car driver so that's why he did a lot he was like qualified to do a lot of the driving and then the what i love is that the the driver the second hitman that the driver for the goons was also actually a, a hollywood stunt driver so it wasn't they actually just put him in the movie and they had him be one of the hitmen rather than trying to like fake that and i think that's awesome that they actually chose 
real drivers to do this. Like, it, it goes back to that why it feels real, because they were actually reacting to actually driving those cars. And it goes back to what we talked about with Mirror Mirror, like, when most of your driving is, it's me with a fake steering wheel with a, you know, a green screen behind me and a fake car, you know, a car body so that I can make it look like I'm driving. It winds up not feeling real. Like there's no suspension, there's no suspension of disbelief. And it's just like, okay, it's just kind of a, a fun popcorny action. Like, oh, this is the, you know, first Fast and Furious. This is the car chase moment, right? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And it also allows you to get both great interior shots and exterior shots. You know, when you don't have to kind of, shoot at a, at a weird angle to hide the fact that it's just a guy who kind of looks like Steve McQueen behind the wheel when he's taking a corner at 45 miles an hour. That's the actual guy. Cause that's again, like you said, he's a professional world-class race driver at this point. Mm-hmm. There are a couple moments where I think you can tell that some of them weren't done on the first shot. Cause I think the Mustang had gotten hit and you could tell like, the Mustang already had dents in. I'm like, I don't feel like he'd be driving around a dented Mustang. He's way too cool for them. Like, oh, this has to have been like the second or third time. Like they've done this shot. And it's just like, no, it got hit a couple times. So we're just going to have to roll with. And that's a 1968 budget. And, you know, goof real where, you know, even today, if they did it real, like you, you could take somebody in there and CGI some of those dents and stuff like that out of that. But uh, I still appreciate the fact that, again, it, it implies how real those those chases were yeah i think uh the charger lost about seven hubcaps uh throughout the chase <laughs> like four <laughs> wheels seven hubcaps but okay and then like uh, i guess famously there's like a green volkswagen beetle that they pass like six different times uh <laughs> while they're in the city so yeah it's not perfect but again through a 1968 lens i can see why you know even if you hadn't seen it, you knew somebody that had seen it and they were like, hey, you got to go see Bullet. It's the, the most amazing chase I've ever seen. And uh, yeah, it, it holds up fairly well. And I will say as a caveat to all this, I am not a huge car chase guy like that. It's never gotten me excited in movies. It's not to say that I don't like them or appreciate them, but it's like I am not a car chase aficionado by any chance or somebody who gets super excited. But I do and I did enjoy I think to me it was how realistic the chase was in Bullet, and that's why I appreciated it so much. Is this movie does feel very authentic to how humans would act, and because of that, that chase feels real, and it's more enjoyable to me. Even it, you know it's a it's a ten eleven minute long chase. Like by all means, I should have been bored by the end of that, but I was like, no, this is this is actually very engaging, and I'm enjoying the chase because. Yeah, to, not to echo myself too much, but it just it felt real. It felt like like that's how Steve McQueen would have reacted to being followed. And that's how the goons would have tried to get away and everything. So it just it doesn't feel like Hollywood fluff for the sake of getting the audience riled up, you know? Yeah, it, it, it very much feels real from the sense that it, it, it is shot on location. It's McQueen doing most of the driving. But like you said, it's not in the movie because a studio screening happened and they said, well, hey, it's been 20 minutes since we had Vin Diesel in an action scene. We let's let's put something here. Uh, it, it felt very intentional where it was. And like you said, the rest of the movie is such a slow burn that by definition, it's going to make the chase even more exciting. Mm -hmm. So with that, I think we have a clear transition into either San Francisco treat, which I have no idea what that could possibly be. That's a, that's a Santana special there or real human being. 
Um, so I'm going to let you decide. There's a fork in the road, Travis, left or right. Um, I'm, assu- I'm assuming you were being sarcastic about San Francisco Treat. That just really is I – mean, we've kind of already done it, so we'll, we'll pay quick lip service to it. But just the setting of, of shooting in this in San Francisco, uh, we mentioned that in 48 Hours, but I think this – movie even more so i just knowing that it's a hundred percent location-based suit shooting and seeing like you said this place is really distressed it's not hollywood distressed um i i just love it it just feels there's a level of grime to it that you just don't see anymore so that that was just the the san francisco treat was just the setting of this movie so do you think how much influence do you think bullet had on san francisco being a setting for cop movies like, do you think if it had not been for the success of Bullet that you'd still have a lot of movies set in San Francisco? Because when I think of, like, crime movies, I would still go, oh, New York or a Chicago or Miami would be my instant places to go. Even in L.A. feels more more of a likely setting than the backdrop being San Francisco. And we've already said Dirty Harry, 48 Hours. Like, there's so many movies that are, are set in San Francisco. Do you think a certain level of that is people playing you know, intentional or unintentional homage to Bullet. Like, oh, San Francisco, like it's a fantastic setting for, for a cop movie. Like, is it, or is it just because Bullet did it so well and people love Bullet so much that it's like, let's go to San Francisco with this? I, I definitely think it's one part Bullet success. I think it's also another part the Zodiac killer, like mm-hmm. real life events taking place in San Francisco. Um, so yeah, you have a successful uh you know, cop action drama with bullet, you know, that is iconic for that car chase almost instantly. And then, you know, the rip from the headlines element of what's really going on with this serial killer. Um, yeah, I think that's the two big influences why the seventies and eighties, you know, one out of four cop movies were San Francisco based. Yeah. Totally well, made up you... that one out of four number, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also, I guess if you are going to try and do at least some on, on location shooting, San Francisco isn't too far from L.A. If you're trying to uh, to move a production company there, so it could also uh, I'm sure there's a budget reason why you might set more stuff in San Francisco as well. Yeah, and just aesthetically, it's it's a beautiful city to look at on film. I think you know we bring up Christopher Nolan in The Dark Knight a lot. I mean, The Dark Knight technically. Gotham City was shot in, I think, three different cities over the course of three different movies because they all kind of had a samey feel to them. Uh, I don't think you can shoot anywhere else and call it San Francisco, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a very iconic location. Uh, but did you want to move to real human being? Yeah. And a real hero. Um, it's just wild to me that uh, I, I don't know. You're more of a McQueen aficionado than I am. Was he considered the coolest guy in America because of this movie or already by the time he made it, was he the king? I, of I cool? think that this added to it. I think, I mean, he was always kind of the king of cool. Um, even some of the stories about him is definitely one of those things where it's like, he was kind of a, an abusive asshole, but he just wound up being this thing where like he was the man's man. Well, at the same time, he, he could show his sensitive side. So therefore he could also be a ladies man where he was just kind of the, in that, the middle of that Venn diagram. But yeah, I, I think at this point he was already kind of established as a, as a cool dude. And this really just cemented him. And it's just so interesting to, to look at him because I mean, these days, you know, your action stars, your your Chris Hemsworth, your Chris Evans, 
you know, the instant they get cast in something that is heroic, whether it be Marvel or otherwise, you know, naturally and unnaturally, they're enhancing their bodies because they have, you know, world-class trainers and world-class chefs and, mm. uh, again, probably steroids or HGH. Um, and you watch them on screen and you're like, hey, they're, they're doing some heroic feats, but you never feel like you could you could be them. You, you simply can't mm-hmm. afford to be a real person that work a real job and, and achieve that status. Whereas with McQueen, man, it looks like he just walked out of a factory in anywhere USA. And yet he's still like when he's in the hospital and the nurse gives him the, the hospital, you know, PB and J and milk, and he's just sitting in there eating that. I'm like, just the way he's eating that sandwich just exudes coolness, but an achievable level of coolness, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, because not only that, it's it's an every man's meal, right? It's not like he was at the hospital and they brought him in a doggy bag of something else. Like, he's eating a PB&J and a glass of milk, right? That's a child's meal, and he's just eating it like it's cool. Like, yeah, this is the meal. I do love that scene. I can't. I have to break myself up while I'm talking about When she comes, are you the cop that's hungry? And he goes, oh, yes, yes, ma'am. Thank you. And he gets it. And then it just says the slow pan over to the police officer who's standing there. I'm like, this shot has to be like, I'm I'm also the hungry police. I'm like, I legitimately laughed out loud. I'm like, I don't think that's supposed to be a funny scene. But I just, I absolutely loved. Yes, yes, I'm I'm the hungry. I'm like, was he the hungry officer or was that the hungry officer? He just took his sandwich. It was a crime of opportunity, Brad. It was a crime of opportunity. Um, I also love when uh, Chalmers is giving him the business over the phone and then hands the phone to, I guess, a higher up in, in the police force. He's like, here, your boss wants to talk to you. And Bullet just hangs up the phone. He's just like, I'm done with this conversation. Yeah, absolutely not. Um there's also there's a lot of really subtle scenes like there's a, a point where he's walking across the street and some women in short skirts walk in front of him and you can clearly see he looks them up and down and I'm like again he's just an everyman that's just as well like it wasn't one of those where he's just gonna keep his like that's exactly what 98% of men are gonna wind up doing in that situation I'm like they just kept it in the movie it's just again he's the everyman and it's also to your point about like just that the being the king of cool it's like these days if you have a heroic guy at some point he's gonna have it's they do all of that training for a 10 second shot of them with their shirts off where they're just completely fucking ripped right but like steve mcqueen we are introduced to his character wearing silk pajamas right <laughs> yeah we are introduced and even in that scene it's another one of those things it's that subtlety where it's like his buddy uh what is it uh, uh delgatti delgetti his partner Delgetti comes in, pours the orange juice, and you can see where, and I can't tell if this was scripted or just it was an accident, but Delgetti walks past Bullet sitting on the bed, and Bullet puts his hand up for the orange juice, and just Delgetti keeps walking with the glass, and you see him put his hand down like, well, I thought the juice was for me. And I'm like, <laughs> I absolutely, again, it's those little subtle nods, and I'm like, I love the fact that like he's thinking Delgatti's trying to like take care of him, like we gotta get out of here, and Delgatti's like, no, I'm the orange juice is for me. Like, I had to come and wake you up, asshole. Like, I'm gonna drink the orange juice, and I'm gonna read the newspaper very loudly to show you how irritated I am, the fact that you're still sleeping, right? I'm like, it's... <laughs> It goes back to the whole feeling lived in. Like, those characters feel real. Like, that is a real interaction between partners, right? Like, the level of irritation, like, in the, how late were you out last night? Because 
at that point when they say how late were you at like you don't know that bullet is a socialite right you're thinking like well maybe he was staged a case or something like that and then it's later in the movie you realize it's like oh no he's just hanging out with the architect until like four o'clock in the morning it's like so you can tell why his, his buddy would have been irritated it's like so bullet what time did you get home because clearly you were out drinking last night <laughs> Yeah, I don't know when we'll do another Steve McQueen movie. So I have to bring this up, even though technically it's a it's a different movie of his. But all the little small acting choices. I wonder if it's a McQueen thing, because uh, have you seen The Magnificent Seven? Mm hmm. So at that time, Yul Brenner was a, a much bigger star than McQueen was. Um, but apparently McQueen pissed Yul Brenner off because almost every shot McQueen, even if he's not speaking and Yul Brenner is, he's doing something in the background to kind of <laughs> make the viewer look at him. Like he'll, you know, take out a, they'll be riding in a wagon and he'll take out a shotgun shell and just kind of wiggle it by his ear to make sure that it's full or like he'll be tipping his cap to kind of look up at the sun and, and, and make sure that his hat's like blocking out the sun. Mm -hmm. And apparently after takes, Yul Brenner would be like, what the fuck are you doing? That's not in the script. Um, but it must have worked because I feel like the Magnificent Seven was a jumping off point for his career going to another level. So there's mm. there's a method to his madness. Well, and I assume knowing that it, it might not be in the script, but that is something Mc, McQueen is actively doing to make things feel organic. Right. And that's why I appreciate stuff like that in this movie where it's your point. I, I probably love this movie way more than you do and why I think it's more of an art house film because in today's standards it would be art house because there are all of those subtleties that in, a, in an action movie of today's standards you wouldn't do that because that's not the focus the focus is getting you from action scene to action scene to action scene it's not about making it feel like these are real people and and to add to real people what i think is interesting again looking at today's standard of villain versus or i'm going to say antagonist because i don't know if i want to call char was it chalmers Chalmers, Charles, yeah. Chalmers, 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 um, Chalmers, a a villain so much as a protagonist. I feel he's the true protagonist of the, of this movie today. And and Bullet Chalmers is not, and like he's he's just self fulfilling, right? All he wants, he's only taking care of himself. Everything he does is like he picked McQueen because McQueen or Bullet because Bullet gets headlines and he wants to make a splash because he wants to be reelected. He's looking to further his career. And he's going to use Bullet to do that. And then when Bullet fails, his whole active thing is like, I need to get this wrapped up so it doesn't get out to the public because I don't want to be exposed, right? Today, Chalmers would have been part of the conspiracy. Like, it wouldn't have just been a cell, like a, a, a politician who's out for himself and just trying to, to further his career. It would have been like, oh no, Chalmers is part of the whole conspiracy. Like, Char and I thought that the whole time I was watching the movie, I'm like, oh, this whole thing, like in today's standards, it would feel like they're leading up to Chalmers is the reason. Like, he's trying to close the investigation because he doesn't want to be found out he was with the organization or he's the one funneling money or something like that. Or that's where part of the $2 million went or where it eludes at the beginning and and fake ross gets shot he's like no he told me and then he gets shot you're like oh you would have thought that was chalmers and chalmers would end up being at the end of it not that it was real ross basically set up fake ross and it's like it's so interesting to me again going back to the whole real human being like listen most i I have to believe that the majority of politicians are not part of some huge world conspiracy or anything like that it's just they're assholes that are out 
for themselves and no one else. And I'm like, that's exactly what this movie is. Like Chalmers is just out for himself. And it, I love the shot at the end where it's like, basically he is fucked over the police department, right? He's like, he gives no shit about bullet or actually doing justice, but he gets into a limousine that has that sticker, support your local law enforcement. When in reality, Chalmers was not like supporting bullet at all. Right. He said multiple times, like I'm going to basically take you down for this and even if you did nothing wrong i'm going to make sure it looks like you did something wrong to take the heat off of myself yeah and i think that's a that's a perfect way to get into anti-establishment because i i agree with you 100 i thought because even early in the movie uh bullet kind of indirectly accuses chalmers of being involved and i'm like oh see that's a little breadcrumb you know he's going to end up being right because he's like well you know they they used your name and he's like, are you implying I had something to do with it? Uh, yeah. I was like, well, yeah, they're, they're really dropping that heavy hand, but yeah, you're right. At the end of the day, he, he is only interested in anyone, uh, so far as how they can better his career and advance him. And it's interesting to see because now these days I, I feel like politicians and police are in lockstep, uh, you know, I know that he's got the support the troops sticker on the car, but it's interesting to see the police and politicians be in such loggerheads in this movie, because not only uh, does Bullet not give a shit about his political aspirations, but even the the captain, uh, he he tries to bribe him uh, like outside of the church uh, mm-hmm. and basically like, hey, you know, hand me over. Uh, you know, bullet and, you know, there's no reason on a captain's salary, you know, you, you can't do better. And the captain absolutely refuses. And that's when he serves him the papers because he's going to try to kind of charm him first mm-hmm. before he strong arms him. But it was just interesting to see the political figure and the police be the protagonist and antagonist because usually I feel like today's standards, they would be more closely aligned. Yeah, it's, I, I love that line at the end. It's where you finally see like some some actual emotion out of Bullet when Chalmers goes, "Listen, Bullet, there has to be compromise." And he goes, "Bullshit!" And he's like, "No, this is my guy. I'm taking Ross down." Like he he murdered two people or got two people murdered. He got one of like my my what is it? One of my detectives shot. Like, no, the the guy's going down. Like, I'm not. We're not playing this game. Yeah, and, and also to your point, I I don't think I can recall a more realistic depiction of a sleazy politician than Chalmers in this movie because he's well-spoken and charming, but he is just constantly manipulating just to better things for himself. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I kind of tortured you with the open, uh, kind of <laughs> pulling some of his dialogue from this movie because God, not only is are the lines amazing, but his delivery is incredible. And that actor, I don't have him pulled up right now, but he is somebody who just, he's been a working Robert actor Vaughan. up until his, yeah, up until his death in 2016. He's always, he's so great at playing some sort of slightly corrupt official of some sort. Yeah, for absolutely. I had something else I was going to say about this and I completely have blanked on it. So maybe if it comes up later, I'll, <laughs> <laughs> he'll bring it back up i have my train of thought was derailed i have no idea what i was about to say <laughs> um i will say also um i don't know how much of it was chalmers just trying to control the situation or were they painting him as, as subtly racist but 
He seemed hell-bent on getting that doctor replaced and questioning that doctor's credentials. And I wasn't sure if that was racism or if he was trying to get kind of a doctor that's, quote-unquote, on his payroll in there. I couldn't tell what they were going for, but I was like, so, wait, this is weird. If they had done the Chalmers is behind the conspiracy, I would have said it was to get a doctor on his payroll. Because they didn't, I feel like it was racism. <laughs> Just underline racism in 68, where it's like, again, funny back then, that was racist. We're still the bad guys, you know? <laughs> so... Yeah, it just it put an extra layer of scumbagginess on Chalmers um, because, I, yeah, I, frankly, I, I would probably find the man charming. So it, it's good to paint him with a broader brush to make sure that the audience hates him. Mm. I do remember what I was going to say now. Thank God. So what I also think is interesting about Steve McQueen's character is they did it like with the when I, I said it earlier about the whole like, oh, how late were you out last night? And you don't find out later. It's he was a socialite. That's why they. They do a lot of, I feel like, setting up McQueen or Bullet as a certain way. Like, why does why does his character do this? And then they basically justify his actions later. And I think another great scene is when he takes the phone call and he's with his his fling. What's uh, Catherine, I believe is her name. Kathy? Kathy, Kathy the yeah. architect. Yeah. So he takes the call and he's done. And she's like, hey, do you want, like, what was that about? And he's basically just like, just, I'm not telling you. Like, it's none of your business and stuff like that. And you think, like, he's just, like, man, he's is he a womanizer? Is he just an asshole? Like, I don't understand. Like, this is supposed to be his girl and he's just being a dick about it. And then later, she sees the dead body and you have the whole conversation about, like, how can you be around this? Like, it's going to eat away at you and therefore it's going to eat away at us. And you're like... Okay, there's actually, like, the reason he doesn't bring it up is because he realizes how terrible this stuff is, and he doesn't want—he's shielding her, essentially, from how dark his occupation actually can be. Like, this is a reality, is that he's going to see murders like this. And to me, it's like, okay, that actually kind of—if you were to go and do a second watch fairly soon afterward, you would realize, okay, his—him reacting—or the, the acting the way he is is actually justified later in the movie when you realize— Again, this is a way of him kind of buffering what he does in the real world versus who he is outside of being a cop, which is the socialite with bubbly. Because again, that you see him, the, the, you don't get to hear the conversation, but when he's social, the socialite at night, like he's so bubbly and smiling, and it looks like he's joking. And then it's like it's a, a hard cutoff once he goes into detective mode. Like he's very short with people and stuff like that. So I do think it's very interesting that they wind up they'll hint at like him being a certain way. And then later in the movie, they, they essentially answer a question you might have about him. Yeah. That's a, I don't know if this movie invented that trope, but I mean, that's a trope that ran at least all the way through, uh, heat with Al Pacino. Cause he kind of drops that line to his wife. Cause his wife has similar objections. And he's like, you know what you want to hear that? I, some crackhead put their baby in a microwave. Um, did enjoy my Pacino impression there, Brett. Okay. Um, <laughs> I thought it was fantastic. But yeah, that's a trope that carries through cop movies. And again, this movie is so influential. I wonder if this was like one of the prime examples that they then built off of. Mm-hmm. I just, I've got a review in my notes before we get out of five points. Like some of the other things, like again, the world feeling lived in where it's stuff you would never see in a, in a modern movie. Like when they're taking the, the detective out who's been shot and they get to the ambulance and they're just like, oh man, someone, they didn't, they didn't open the door. Someone closed the door and Steve McQueen has to get up there and open the door for him. I'm like, they would never do that where it's like, oh, somebody blundered here. Like it just, 
again, it feels like very natural. Like this is something that would happen. And even to the point where bullet it's, and I think this is a Steve McQueen thing where like that, that constant, you know, that constant cool. Like he, he only said, he only talks when he needs to, but he can come off as cold and not caring because of how little he says. But then you have the situation where he stays at the hospital the entire time to see, I think it's Stanford is, is his, um, Stanton, Stanton to make sure that Stanton is okay. And to see what happens with Ross, like he stays at the hospital the entire time until that's taken care of. It's like, it's these little things that are like, no, he's actually like, he's a caring human being. He's just not necessarily going to be very talkative and you they, they make sure that they they give you that balance yeah and doesn't he like at some point either in the chase or after the chase doesn't he check on like another motorcycle. motorist or something yeah i was like yeah when the motorcycle falls that he doesn't drive back off until he sees someone else checking on the motorcycle guy and then he peels off yeah that that's a very good point like and i think it's one that the imitations of these movies sometimes forget and they just make their protagonist cop kind of a, a, an aloof asshole. Whereas, like you said, Bullet, I didn't think the, the, the Kathy stuff me 48 hours. Are time. you talking about 48 hours? <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They don't do a good enough job of showing that they have a soft side. They just kind of have to, to your point, compartmentalize you know, their psyche. They can't be the same person at work that they are at home. They almost mm -hmm. have to behave as separate human beings, as unhealthy as I'm sure that is. Mm -hmm. um, we still at least see the soft side, whereas Jack Cates is like, hey, you know, I'm only calling you all these racial slurs because that's just <laughs> what society tells me to do. <laughs> um, so I think that pretty much, you know, polishes up five points for me i don't know if there do you have any closing remarks before we do tag and title uh no i'm ready all righty so travis i'm going to give you three taglines one tagline is for 1968's bullet one tagline is for a movie i found adjacent and one tagline is one that I made up myself. What I need you to do is tell me which one of these is an original tagline for 1968's Bullet. Are you ready? Yes, sir. Many of his fellow officers consider him the most dangerous man alive, an honest cop. He always gets his mark. And there are bad cops, there are good cops, and then there's Bullet. Um, so <laughs> I got so excited because I heard the first one and I have a logical guess as to what it is. I didn't really listen to the other two, but let me give you my guess on the first. Okay. And I know you won't tell me if I'm right until the end. So I'm going to guess the first one is Serpico. Okay. The honest cop thing. That was a little bit All of right. a giveaway to me. So uh, right. can you hit me with the second one? I'll listen this time. There are bad cops and there are good cops. And then there's Bullet. And he always gets his mark. I think it would be too... You put Bullet in the tagline, and I think that would be too easy if it was real. I'm going to say you made that one up, and he always gets his mark is an actual tagline for this movie. So, Travis, are those your final answers? Final answer. So I'll tell you that you got the bonus point. It was Serpico. 
but you got the you got the tagline wrong. So you, you, actually, you it actually, he always, you actually gave me the fucking tagline that has the word bullet in it. It's actually I did knowing that it would throw you off. He always gets his mark was mine. Here's the other tagline I could have given you. All right. Official tagline for this movie. The word cop isn't written all over him. Something more puzzling is. I just thought that was a shitty tagline and I wasn't going to give it the <laughs> give it the option of being the true tagline this week. Yeah, that's one of the worst we've had on this show. So, already, so you you did. I had a feeling you were going to get Serpico, but I couldn't think of another movie that. I guess I could have done a Dirty Harry, but I felt the Serpico was more French Connection. I could have done French Connection. I felt Serpico was more in line with who Bullet was rather than just being a renegade cop. So that's regardless of knowing you were going. to... I mean, it was a 1973 Al Pacino. Also, if you're a big fan of Always Sunny in Philadelphia, there's a hilarious episode where Charlie Day becomes Serpico because uh, the gang steals a cop car and they cut Charlie out and won't let him drive it anymore. And he becomes Serpico to try and get the car returned. And it's <laughs> his portrayal. His portrayal of Al Pacino as Serpico is fantastic. <laughs> I've episode. never seen that, but I think I'll Serp- have to Serpico. Uh, hit that up after <laughs> this podcast. Um, alrighty. Let's do some blue book. This was an interesting one. Uh, this is, for the most part, when I do a blue book, I you try and use IMDb numbers just to stay consistent. But IMDb numbers were just blatantly fucking wrong this week, so I had to do some digging to get you an actual an actual number here. So the budget for this movie, which is consistent everywhere, was about five point five million. Somewhere between four and five point five million is what I found. That was the sticker price. Now I'm going to tell you what IMDb told me for the gross income and why I had to continue doing research because according to IMDb the gross US income was $500,000 and the gross worldwide was five basically a little over that and I'm like it this movie clearly made more than $500,000 right so did some more digging I have real numbers for you what do you think this movie brought in U.S. and Canada. I'm going to tell you now, I have, you're going to guess two numbers, but I, I couldn't get a worldwide. But the 1968 box office numbers, what do you think this brought in? Um, this is 1968 money, so I legitimately could be off by many millions of dollars. Um, I'm going to say 12 million, 12.5 million. Not bad, not bad. This was a a huge success, $19 million in 1968. So here's your second number. As of 2021, how much do you think this movie's made box office with re-releases and such? Oh, God. Uh, I mean, honestly, I don't recall it being released in my lifetime in the theater, unless that's just more of an L.A., New York thing. So I can't imagine it would be a ton I'll say 68 million. Okay. Lifetime box office is for about 42 million. Okay. All right. For this one. So, but that's your blue book for this week. You said, if you, if, I don't if know. If this movie came to your town cinematically, would you go see it? I'd probably go see it in the theater. Yeah. 
Like, I mean, it wouldn't be like in a Tinseltown or an AMC. This is going to be one of the, well, maybe they started doing some of those retro things. I would probably see this just to see that, that car chase and on the big screen. It's a two hour movie, which again goes back to our joke about we prefer movies about an hour and a half. I am convinced, Travis, that movies basically late 90s and about early 2000, that's when movies were an hour and a half long. And any time between or, or before or after that, everything was two hours. Because we talk about we like movies being around t- like an hour and a half. Everything we review is two hours long. And I don't know, like, was it just a weird period of time where we were growing up and like, our coming of age stories were like movies like we tried to hit that hour and a half mark and that was the only time it happened because everything is like for god's sake the batman is three hours long that's a three hour long theater movie yeah i don't this definitely felt like an hour and a half movie that was stretched to two hours um it, it jumped out to me when bullet goes back to the the scene of the crime in the apartment and he's just I know that he's supposed to be standing there analyzing the crime scene, but it's literally just him looking around the hotel room and then looking at the, you know, somebody drew up how the the shooting went and taped it (laughs) to the wall for whatever reason. But he was standing in there a good four minutes of screen time, just silently looking about the room. I'm like, can we trim some of this stuff down and get it closer to an hour and a half? Because uh, spoiler alert, Brett, I had to split this into two viewings. Mm -hmm. I uh for me it was the airport chase where there were a lot of scenes of just airports driving around the airport and I was like okay this I realize we're trying to create the atmosphere but we could cut this and then when you can tell a modern thing like when they're going through the suitcase um and it's like they're they're literally looking at everything like oh he's got some socks here oh these gloves, these are really nice gloves and I'm like oh my god I'm like are we really going to look at every item in this suitcase oh do you see do you see the lining here this is a really nice lining do you think these are custom best I think he uses Tide detergent. This is smell this. <laughs> smell this. Fantastic. Oh my god! Look at this. It's like I was like, okay, this is definitely where we could have we could have shaved a little bit here, where we didn't need to see them literally looking at everything in the suitcase. Also, I don't know why I need to bring this up and why it stuck out to me so much. But you were talking about you know this could be an art house film if it were made today and some beautiful shots. What was the point of the shot of Robert Duvall's cab going through the car wash with the close-up of his, like, bobblehead dog in the back windshield? I think the bobblehead dog was just to establish, because that was an establishing shot earlier in the movie, so you knew it was the same cab. And maybe that was the how... I don't know how bullet would have known like oh it was a cabbie with a dog in the back but like that's like okay that's how he knew which cab because that was my thought i'm like we didn't establish like how he would know which cabbie drove the dude around i'm like maybe it's the dog is what we're trying to establish like that was a you know we've seen this in multiple places he knew to ask about the dog but to your point yeah the cab being cleaned i'm like was it a dirty cab like is this a metaphor for something as it's being cleaned <laughs> off but i'm just like yeah it's just a very long shot of a cab being cleaned for yeah, some reason bullet just standing there watching it even though the driver's not in it i don't know it was just weird and when when movies are plotting to me i always notice those kind of scenes even more yeah it's almost like there was a, a missed line where when they're talking to the guy at the the shitty hotel and he says, like, oh, it was a sunshine cab. It was supposed to be, like, it was a sunshine cab. He had a dog in the rear view or in the in the back. And, like, oh, that's it. Now he knows to look for the one with the dog. But that line was missed in the original script. Like, it was either not written in or it was not delivered the way it was supposed to be. And, like, because that would have been all you needed to have that connective tissue. Like, okay, he noticed the dog in the back of the sunshine cab. And that's how Bullet knows which cabbie to look for. 
Yeah, just a, a very minor nitpick, but I, it just was kind mm-hmm. of a weird scene. But I, I was excited once I knew that Robert Duvall was coming back. Getting a little more time. Because when I first, I was like, I think that's Robert, a young Robert Duvall. And I was like, was he just a, like a little cameo or not cameo at this point? It would have been like, did he just have kind of like a, a sidebar? Like, oh, thank God. No, he gets he gets a little bit more time. So. All right, you got a chop or not. Do you have a time capsule for us this week? Uh, I do. It's it's a very quick, more of an Easter egg, really. But um, have you seen the movie Zodiac? Yes, I have. Uh, I'll I'll openly admit, I like the movie Zodiac. I don't know what your feeling is. Oh, dude. Close to a perfect movie, like 9.8 out of 10. I love Zodiac. Good, good guy. Yeah, I I love Zodiac. Uh, So obviously, uh, well, not obviously. This is why it's the the time capsule. Uh, McQueen based the character of Frank Bullitt on San Francisco inspector Dave Toshi, whom he worked with prior to filming. Uh, McQueen copied Toshi's unique fast draw shoulder holster that he wears with his turtleneck. Uh, Toshi later became famous along with Inspector Bill Armstrong as the lead San Francisco investigators of the Zodiac killer murders that began shortly after the release of Bullet. Uh, Toshi is played by Mark Ruffalo in the film, uh, and Robert Downey Jr.'s character Paul Avery mentions that McQueen got the idea for the holster from Toshi. Hmm. So I just thought that's a quick it's it's fun now to have seen this movie and then to go back and see Zodiac and just notice that little quick homage to real world events uh, Mm -hmm. with the filming of Bullet. No, that's awesome. Yeah. Kind of a snake eating its tail there, but (laughs) yeah, yeah. (laughs) Alrighty, sir. Well, I think that brings us up to the, the final final segment here. Chop shop. Are you ready to get in some choppy chop? I'm ready. All right, so this week I got family friendly. I think you got mini. Did you get mini series? I like how Oscar every pick? week, Brett, you pretend like you don't remember which one I got. Yes, it's mini series, Brett. I, I like that bit. I, I hope you keep that going. Well, now you've you've ruined the you've broken the fourth wall. <laughs> they can see the man behind the curtain now. You son of a bitch. Uh, but yeah, mini series. All right, how how much how in depth do you get with your mini series? Um, uh, it's four pages long. Okay, we'll go ahead and start with mine. Mine's family. <laughs> okay. Mine's mine's very brief. Um, so I got I had to turn this movie into a family friendly flick. So I went with a, a, a touch. I took bullet, but a touch is Zootopia. Not sure if you've seen that movie or not. I Probably have. haven't. Oh, you have. Okay. I have. That's, uh, and then a little shout out April little, Gilmore if she's listening. <laughs> Very, thank you for that, you know. Uh, and then a, a, a splashing of Ace Ventura, all right? Pet detective, not when nature calls. Just make, I'll make sure I... <laughs> thank you for the clarification. Clarify. It's important. Yeah. Okay. Um, so first I'm going to do how I recast. Our, it's it's going to be an animated flick. They're all going to be animals, all right? I'm going to tell you how I've recast the... <laughs> I'm going to tell you most of them so I don't ruin one of my jokes. Um... 
but it's going to focus a little bit more on Bullet and Delgetti, their relationship. Um, but Bullet and Delgetti are going to be Wolves. Uh, uh, Chalmers? 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 A Chalmers? Mario Chalmers. I accidentally wrote him down as Chambers. I don't know why, and that's why I keep getting confused because then I have to try and remember in my head what it actually is. Chalmers is a jackal. Uh, Rennick and Ross are both weasels. Baker, who was... I thought he was a captain, but I guess he wasn't. He was just kind of the, the guy who was on Chalmers' side, the detect, or the detective on Chalmers' side, uh, is going to be played by a, a Martin. Uh, captain oh, Bennett is a, a Martin. It's, it's kind of like a, a ferret or a weasel. Look, It kind of looks like a fox. Okay. Uh, Captain Bennett is a lion. Staten is a fox, and Eddie is a hyena. Now, I don't really bring up. I just there's certain characters I wanted to make sure I I specified what they were here. Um, so our movie is going to open with Bullet and his partner having coffee at a diner. In the background, uh, there's going to be a news report that's talking about a, a recent outbreak of what appears to be a mild strain of rabies that can be treated uh, in the Bay Area, as well as some kind of uh, like smuggling is going on in, in the city and they're you know detectives are trying to get i don't know what they'd be smuggling in an animal world at first i thought i was gonna say catnip but that doesn't seem right and i don't i could maybe it's just something we make up, like a MacGuffin, just for the sake of having it so uh we'll say catnip for the purpose of my story knowing that that's not what it really would be but uh so delgetti and bullet are having small talk um about if frank is still seeing that beaver or not um <laughs> Well done. Okay, so nice little so adult joke for the kid movie. I like. So that. here's the thing. I don't. I originally said that Kathy was going to be a lynx, uh, but I was like, oh, but she's an architect and beavers build things, and it's an adult joke. So I'm going to say beaver, but we'll, well call it. We'll... <laughs> no, it's it's saying beaver. Yeah. <laughs> so then, if he's still seeing that beaver, again, she's an architect. Beavers build things, right? Okay. Uh, Frank doesn't say much, just a simple yes, and keeps drinking his coffee. Degetti brings up that Bullet's never been much of a talker, and he really needs to learn to open up, right? Right about this time, Bullet and Delgatti are going to wind up getting a call from their captain. They're getting a new assignment, okay? And this is where we introduce Johnny Ross. Now, he's an accountant for the operation, and he's fled Chicago. He's agreed to work with local prosecutors and help for bringing on the organization, but he, want, he wants to be like a witness protection. He's got to be protected, right? Obviously, He's not going to put his neck out there for nothing, but he also, he's stolen some money. He needs, he needs to get out of the organization. So, uh, Chalmers, uh, handpicks bullet. He's a detective that he knows gets results and beyond just getting results, he produces headlines and he wants to use bullet obvious, you know, to, to basically build up his career. So he brings him, he says he has to protect Ross for 48 hours, which I also think it's funny that, 48 hours is that a thing that started in this in bullet too like everybody has to do something for they have 48 hours you have the weekend right you have until monday monday i have to i have to bring this in right it's another one of those i feel like cop quintessential cop things um so it's not long under bolts you know protection that ross is attacked the first night and he gets like shot with a serum that gives him rabies because it's a family-friendly flake we can't kill we can't kill ross right he gets rabies, as well as Officer Stanton, uh, who has a new litter at home. All right, he's a fox. He's a new dad. He's got a litter of foxes at home. Uh, Ch our Chalmers blames Bullet and swears to end his career if Ross can't testify. Right. So again, Ross is maybe this mild strain of rabies. You know, that's why we have to kind of a, a breadcrumb at the beginning of the movie. 
Well, at the hospital, the doctors are able to stop the infection on Stanton, so he's okay. But Ross becomes feral, lashing out at the doctors, and there's nothing they can do, right? So, Bullet remains at the hospital until Stanton stabilizes. Again, we have to show that Bullet is a compassionate wolf, right? And I obviously, I chose wolf because you have lone wolves and pack wolves, right? So, we're going to see that transition, maybe, through the movie. Maybe we'll get them there, right? So... Uh, Bullet and Delgati start to look into Ross and the hitmen and, uh, that attack the room. The two begin to investigate Ross and they begin to uncover a larger conspiracy between the Bay and the Windy City, right? Uh, we're not going to say San Francisco or Chicago because it's obviously a made up animal worlds, but we'll just the Bay and the Windy City. Uh, As they continue their investigation, Chalmers is constantly trying to interfere with it, right? And he's trying to use his, his, uh, a, a new a new detective on the task force, Baker, that's more in line with him to bring, uh, which brings a lot of suspicion on, on Chalmers, right? Like Chalmers, it seems like Baker is on his payroll or something like for whatever reason, Baker really is, is on, on Chalmers side. Right. So, uh, we've, we've continued to find out that the bay is being used to smuggle in whatever this catnip, right? Uh, Ross, or not Ross, sorry. Bullet and Delgatti will continue to get closer throughout the movie. We'll have some of those fun buddy cop moments where they get to kind of share a little bit about themselves. And the climax, it's going to be revealed that Ross wasn't actually infected and that it was actually a setup in a switcheroo. Baker is actually Ross. All right? This is our, our Ace Ventura when we find out that the chief is, is actually Finkel is Einhorn. Einhorn is Finkel, all right? <laughs> And is part and was part of the operation. And he wasn't just an accountant. He actually tracked the manifest and the shipments coming out of the bay for the operation, for the smuggling, right? And stole a bunch of stuff and is trying to get out. Baker has been trying to cover his tracks uh, so that he can skip town, right? So Chalmers is not actually the villain. He does still wind up being just a sleazy politician who's only in it for himself. He just winds up being the victim that he was manipulated by Baker, um bullet and delgati uh wind up getting ross at the end the reason that i have ross is a a martin is a martin looks like a weasel so it's one of those things where like you could oh they could do the switcheroo so that's why he's not a weasel because that's a little too on the nose so he has to be adjacent so it's like a ferret or a martin and a martin kind of looked like a fox too so i was like okay that's can we can kind of blur that line um so at the end obviously bullet and delgati they get their guy they get ross and they end up back at the diner where it all started, where Bullet tells Delgatti more about Kathy, and he asks him about his wife and kids. So he's starting to open up. He's starting to be more of a pack wolf by the end of it. Now they're, you know. So that is that is how I made Bullet. And not only that, he's he's gonna be a, he's gonna be a bit of a a silver bullet if you know what I'm saying. He's a silver <laughs> fox. So uh, that was how I turned Bullet into a family friendly flick. I mean, it, it was a win as soon as you made the beaver joke. Like, you could have thrown up on yourself for the rest of the movie and it would have been fine. But I also love the heartwarming, you know, child message. You know, he starts out as a lone wolf and, you know, maybe you're that that kid that gets picked on and you, you haven't found your pack to run with yet. But, you know, keep trying, keep putting yourself out there. So... You, you nailed both the adult comedy that it's hidden in the movie, but the, the heartwarming message at the center. So bravo, sir. Four-star review. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Wait, but we're a 10-star review show. 
Bye. You know, tomato, tomato. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I got miniseries. Uh, I'm not going to tell you the inspirations. I'll let you guess them at the end or at any point if you want to interrupt me. Uh, but I don't, I don't want to spoon feed you too much. Um, okay. All right. But I did have a little extra flourish this week. Uh, I believe I've got six episodes. Each episode named after a song that would have already been released in 1968. So I have to ask, Travis, is it six episodes because of a six shooter? Six bullets? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, so episode one, Sweet Home Chicago. Now, you may say, hey, the Blues Brothers did that in the 80s, but the original recording was 1936. All right. Uh, Johnny Ross and his business partner, Albert, run the finance department of a Chicago-based trucking company. The pair use their accounting prowess and good relationship with the company's owner to launder money for the Mexican cartel. The company uses the trucks to transport the laundered cash back to Mexico. The pair become greedy, specifically Johnny, and begin to skim uh, from the laundered money, stealing over $2 million. Um, The cartel figures this out and sets up a meeting at a warehouse. So we're replacing the mafia with the cartel. Okay, so... (laughs) That's a good job. I need to get out of my chop shop because I'm picturing these as animals. I need. <laughs> I got a guy. Guy. I got. I got a guy. A guy. Get out of here. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> like, oh, what? <well. laughs> if it's more fun for you, Brad, you can keep pretending they're animals. Um, so the episode will end uh, with Johnny being tortured with a blowtorch uh, at the at the warehouse as Albert is forced to watch. Uh, to drown out Johnny's scream, the cartel turns on a conveniently located television to full volume, and the Pears Trucking Company's commercial happens to be on. The jingle goes, no matter where the road takes you, home will always be sweet home, Chicago, and... Uh, Uh, That's going to be playing uh, interspersed with Johnny's screams as credits roll, and we hear a gunshot. So Uh, is it an actual blowtorch, or is it just a popsicle? Oh, no, no, no. This is HBO. It's it's an absolute blowtorch. Okay, so it's not an an homage to Thomas Jane's The Punisher? No, Tom Jane's The Punisher is not one of the inspiring (laughs) films uh, of my miniseries. Damn it, okay. Okay, I, I feel like I'm a detective. I'm trying to figure out where the inspiration is now. And notice, in our first episode, we didn't even meet Bullet. I thought that would be kind of like risque in Art House in of, of itself to not introduce okay. Bullet mm-hmm. until the second episode. So episode two, Sitting by the Dock of the Bay. Uh, the episode opens with Johnny being tortured with a blowtorch uh, before the cartel henchman shoots him in the head. Uh, we then cut to a flashback of Albert at the trucking company office uh, the day before the meeting with the cartel. So uh, a little bit of a flashback. Johnny informs Albert of the meeting, but as soon as Johnny leaves his office, Albert phones his wife and tells her that he's booking her on a flight to San Mateo. It leaves in three hours and she needs to be on it. Uh, We then finally meet Detective Frank Bullitt driving his signature Mustang close to sundown on the way to dinner with Kathy when he gets a call on his police radio. Uh, The dispatcher informs him that they received an anonymous tip that there's something significant about to go down uh, at a warehouse by the docks. Uh, Bullitt floors it. 
Uh, Bullet arrives at the warehouse where it's now dark. He parks his Mustang outside the location, waits. Eventually, a car arrives where uh, a Mexican, where two Mexican men arrive in the car. Uh, Bullet watches the two men pop the trunk, removing Albert, whose hands are bound. They lead Albert at gunpoint into the warehouse. Bullet sneaks into the warehouse shortly after. Uh, Bullet IDs himself as San Francisco police, but the cartel men pull pistols, forcing Bullet to kill them both. Uh, Bullet will take Albert out to his car so that uh, he can call the station over his radio, but as he walks towards his vehicle, two black 1968 Ford Broncos pull up. And credits Ooh. roll. So I'll just tell you, Brad, I... Uh, That's I no country for of... old men, right? What's that? What's that? Is that no country for old men? You got one, sir. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> well done. Also, I did have to check because... Uh, well, you'll find out why, but I had to make sure that SUVs were around in 68 and they were the bronco quite a beautiful one in fact oh yeah the classic broncos mm. chef's yeah. kiss that's what jack drives in lost yep mm-hmm. i believe that's also what Bodie drives in point break uh, i think you're right uh so episode three secret agent man uh we return to the dock where we are introduced to cia agent walter chalmers uh he was in the suvs uh, so Chalmers is going to go from politician to CIA spook. Uh, unbeknownst to Albert, the CIA is well aware of uh, the Chicago laundering activity, and they've been working to infiltrate the cartel in Mexico. Uh, Chalmers thanks Bullet for intervening. Uh, while Bullet surmises uh, the anonymous tip came from Chalmers, uh, we're going to yada yada here a bit. Uh, Chalmers is going to have political aspirations after he gets out of the CIA. Um uh, but since he is CIA, he can't legally operate in the U.S., so he'll ask Bullet to work on a joint task force. Uh, the CIA wants important financial documents involved with the trucking company and cartel business. That's going to be our MacGuffin. Uh, Albert relays that he sent his wife to their cabin in San Mateo to retrieve the dossier with the information. Albert will only cooperate further if his wife and he can enter witness protection. Uh, Chalmers asks Bullet to take a man he trusts with him to San Mateo to receive the dossier and Albert's wife. Uh, we then cut to a small private airport somewhere in Northern California where a small private jet lands. The plane taxis in and the plane doors open and two sharply dressed Mexican hitmen depart the plane, each carrying large military duffel bags and credits roll. Really like the, uh, the cliffhangers here, don't you? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm a whore for a good cliffhanger, so I always got to do that. <laughs> Uh, episode four, with a little help from my friends. Bullet will enlist the help of rookie detective Carl Stanton to accompany him to San Mateo. Uh, as the two detectives drive along the highway, uh, young and up-and-coming Stanton continuously thanks Bullet for the opportunity and mentions several of the stories and legends of Bullet's previous cases, much to Bullet's annoyance. Uh, on the drive, Bullet notices a black Dodge Charger has been tailing the pair for several miles, and a car chase ensues. Now, instead of having uh, Bullet turn the tables, this is going to be purely uh, Bullet running from the Charger, uh, because he doesn't want a tail to the cabin, and he knows the mission is more important than figuring out who these two guys are. Mm-hmm. Um, so Bullet's going to outdrive them. He's going to exit the freeway and kind of like pull into a gas station and hide. And once they're free of the charger, they'll return to their journey. The pair arrive in San Mateo. San Mate- uh, easy for me to say. The pair arrive in San Mateo at the long winding gravel drive leaving to Albert's cabin. 
Uh, Albert's wife greets the detectives, informing that she's currently finishing packing. The wife hands Bullet a briefcase containing the dossier. Stanton grabs the remaining bags, and the trio head to the car, loading the trunk with the luggage and the briefcase. As Bullet closes the trunk, he notices the black charger parked further down the gravel drive. Bullet turns to alert Stanton, just as Stanton is hit in the chest by a sniper's bullet. Bullet sprints towards Albert's wife, who is shell-shocked from Stanton being hit mere feet from her. Bullet tackles her to the ground. Several more shots ring out, and uh, you can hear the bullets ripping through the trees. Bullet crawls over to Stanton, realizing that he's already dead. A mix of despair and anger flash across Bullet's face, and Bullet tells Albert's wife uh, to give her his... Give him her keys, uh, and she obliges. Uh, he instructs her to crawl towards the Mustang and wait for his signal before climbing in. She whispers, how will I know? Trust me, you'll know. Bullet climbs into the wife's station wagon and starts the engine. He pulls a rag from his pocket and stuffs it into the station wagon's gas tank and lights it ablaze. He returns to the vehicle and floors it towards the hillside, leaping out right before the edge. The station wagon begins picking up speed downhill, mowing down small trees and bushes, heading towards the parked charger. Albert's wife climbs into the Mustang as the station wagon uh, begins to be engulfed in flames. Bullets cross to his Mustang gets in and hauls ass down the hill with the wagon quickly approaching the charger as well as credits roll. Episode 5, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. The episode picks up where we left off. The cartel hitman, hitman with the sniper rifle is a good distance away from the charger. He continues to shoot at the Mustang with a few near misses. The second hitman standing next to the charger uh, fires with a handgun at the Mustang, but has to dive out of the way as the flaming station wagon smashes into the charger right as Bullet shoots the gap and speeds by. Uh, Bullet's going to deliver the information uh, and Albert's wife. Um... And Chalmers has zero interest in pursuing the cartel hitman, as he has the information witness he needs. Uh, much like in the movie, Chalmers will imply that even if the CIA was in the wrong, the situation can easily be viewed as Bullet's fuck-up. He offers condolences for Stanton, hollow condolences of course, and leaves in his fleet of black Ford Broncos. Uh, last episode, episode 6, Born to be Wild. Uh, later, Bullet will confide in Captain Bennett and asks for help with tracking down the hitmen, but Bennett also rebukes him, stating it's not a police matter and uh, he's lucky that Bullet isn't arrested for getting an officer killed off-duty. Um, a disgusted Bullet leaves and heads to a bar on the pier. A reflective Bullet sits at the bar and ties several on before walking outside to a payphone. He calls Kathy, and I will say I didn't do a good job of setting Kathy up, but this is too <laughs> long anyway, so just imagine that Kathy is how she is in the movie. Uh, but Kathy's going to again bring up, you know, how ugly Bullet's life is, and, you know, if he stays in it, it's going to consume him. And uh, Bullet is contrite, apologizing for uh, flaking on her uh, at the beginning of the, uh, the series. Uh, and she agrees to go out with him that night. Buller tells her that he's going home to put on his nice jacket and he'll be over to pick her up and he hangs up the phone. He walks to the edge of the pier and throws his badge into the ocean. Mm-hmm. Classic love renegade that. cop. Yeah, love that trope. Uh, we'll ride with Bullet on his way home. A police call comes in on the scanner and Bullet just shuts it off. He arrives at his apartment and as he enters, he notices a large duffel bag on the bed. 
An alarmed bullet searches his apartment for intruders, but finds none. We cut to Kathy picking up her phone, uh, and then we cut back to Bullet, who opens the mysterious bag. Inside, he finds a disassembled rifle with a night vision scope, several ammo clips, two handguns, and a grenade belt. He also finds a forged passport with his picture, along with GPS coordinates and cash. Bullet's phone rings. He looks up at the phone, and then back to the bag, and our season credits roll. You're a son of a bitch. <laughs> so I want to set up who left the bag there. You have so many fucking setups in this podcast. It's ridiculous. Because <laughs> when you now we have at least this one. We also have the Christmas special that you you ended it with a, a season one cliffhanger. And I want to say I you've done you it at least season one the- two next Christmas, Brett. All right. I, I feel like there was. Oh, and the uh, the producers you set up for a sequel. So you've got three. You've got three sequels set up right now, you son of a bitch. I mean, that's in Hollywood. That's called good business, Brett. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh-huh. Just like they did at the end of 2000's Godzilla, right? When the fucking dinosaur comes out, and you're like, oh, they're set up for the sequel that we never got. All right. Matthew Broderick deserved better. Oh, but yeah, you're just going to season two. We're going to find out who left the bag. Is that a CIA bag? You know, is Chalmers really, is he trying to help him on the sly? Is he trying to recruit Bullet? And is Bullet going to go through with it or is he just going to answer Kathy's call? I mean, we'll find out next fall. Fucker. Also, it was 1998's Godzilla. <laughs> I did. I honestly thought that movie was 2000. But all I remember is the Taco Bell campaign. Oh, it was a big, well, the, the tagline for that, wasn't it bigger is better or size does matter. That's what it was. Yeah, brilliant marketing. I didn't think we would get into 1998's Godzilla, but I love the way they marketed that movie where yeah. like you would be next to a bus and it would just say his tail is this big and just have only his mm-hmm. tail visible. Yeah. Now, the movie itself, dog shit. No, terrible. Absolutely awful. <laughs> Spawned a cartoon, though. Like many, many weird 80s and 90s, like PG-13 to R-rated like movies spawned children's cartoons. Judge Dredd, I believe, had a cartoon aliens uh, had a cartoon aliens mortal Kombat had a cartoon uh yeah a lot of that do not do not understand how any of that worked in the 90s like oh you know this is a great r-rated property how terminator 2 didn't have a cartoon it had a toy line though uh robocop robocop had a cartoon God. Uh, <laughs> yeah it's just like how what what marketing person was like listen adults love this kids will love it too we have to cut down some of the violence but not all of it just the blood <laughs> We can make yeah. them robots. Can you can you imagine Paul Verhoeven on the set of RoboCop as there he's directing the scene where Murphy is almost murdered and like just mm-hmm. shot to pieces, and he's like, yeah, and in, in six short years we'll have a Fox Saturday morning cartoon of this <laughs> for my Jesus Christ allegory. Oh boy. Uh no, I love the miniseries. I think you're a son of a bitch. So was Sicario in there as well? hell yeah that was All the right. main one yeah okay I, I got sicario was there anything beyond sicario in no country for old men uh the third one that you didn't get and maybe you were just thinking movies but ozark oh okay yeah With i can see cartel stuff and the, yeah yep. i can see ozark being in there all right good yeah marty <laughs> If you want to stop me, you're going to have to fucking kill me! 
I see you're a fan. <laughs> yes, sir. Oh. It's hard not to be, you know. I do want some more comedy Jason Bateman though. I mean, I'm a I'm a I'm a Jason Bateman, you know, fanboy here. I love seeing him in the series roles, but I, I want to see him come back to some arrested development. Uh, I mean, he did and it it was a pale imp- impersonation of the previous he- show to me. Oh yeah, that. I mean, you knew a lot of the like. I know we're getting into some sidetrack stuff here before we get into our final comparison, but you know, a large portion of why that failed miserably on Netflix was because the original ensemble they were all filming together, much like they did, like for real, and they did in in Bullet here. When Netflix did it, everybody had become superstars, or a lot of them had, and they couldn't get schedules to line up. So a lot of them were filming their scenes without each other, and then they were trying to Frankenstein it together to make it a series. So that's why a lot of it doesn't flow right. It's because they weren't even in the same room filming. Like it was, they oh, were just God, trying no, to I piece it together. Yeah, because they could, they could never get all the the uh, the actors and actresses. They couldn't get their their schedules to line up. So they would just film like their lines, and like yeah, they tried to hodgepodge it together. I don't think that would work for any comedy, but especially not something like Arrested Development, which feels mm-hmm. so off the cuff. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of that was them playing off of each other. So that was a, a lot of reasons why that that season just did not did not feel right. But well, if you if your bingo card had 1998's Godzilla and Arrested <laughs> Development in the bullet episode, congratulations, you've won a prize. <laughs> uh enough side tangents for now though travis final assessment what would you recommend this movie is it a buy is it a rent is it a a digital loan i don't know where where do you fall in bullet well i know you said enough of the asides but before i give you my final thoughts i want to pull a chalmers and act a a little bit self-interested here on behalf of myself and this podcast if you're dedicated enough to have sat through my incredibly long chop shop and our breakdown of Godzilla and Arrested Development, and you haven't liked the podcast or subscribed to the podcast or review the podcast, please do so. Uh, we, we just, we humbly, we, we love if you listen, uh, if you can throw a five-star review our way, it, it's much appreciated, at least by myself. I'm assuming you agree, Brett. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to see some more reviews out there you know yeah it's, it's, uh, it's a, you know we have to compromise travis bullshit Ooh, i just I, i'm again I, I just blew out somebody's eardrum so apologies <laughs> uh but what did i think of this movie what do i recommend uh would i recommend owning it um mm, no i if you if you're under probably 40 i would say there's there's no reason to own this uh, because, again, I think it's more of a an icon of movies more than it is a good movie. Um, the the Bullets Mustang, we didn't really mention it. One of the most beautiful cars ever produced. Like, mm. if I saw that out on the road today, it would be the best looking car in my town. So um, the movie's iconic. I think it's worth... If you can watch it for free, which I did, it's on HBO Max. Like if it's a part of something that uh, you already own, you don't have to pay any extra for it. And, you know, maybe if you're a car guy or a car person, excuse me, um, check it out. So worth a, a, a free watch on a streamer. That's the best I could give it. What Interesting. About you? Okay. So I 
have a poster of this on my wall. Like a, it's a graphic design studio out of Orlando called Lure Design that has my poster. So it's it's not the original theatrical poster, but I, I have a, a print for Bullet. With that said, I do not own this movie. So it falls into that weird category. I do love this movie. It's not one I would see me going back and watching a lot, but it is something that I appreciate and really do love what this movie did for cinema. I think, again, those sh- there are some absolutely beautiful shots in this movie. Uh, it is a bit of a slow burn. I think it is just, it lays the groundwork for a lot of what would become cop the renegade cop genre. As we were joking about, like, did the 48-hour thing come from, like, how much of that is homage to this movie? Or not even, like, active homage. Just like, oh, make it 48 hours. Like, why do we always make it 48 hours? Like, I, I don't know. We saw it in Bullet. Like, it always, like, it. how much how much of modern day cinema basically kind of came out of like a love letter to this movie, whether it being intentional or unintentional. I definitely think this movie is worth watching, especially if you are a cinemaphile and you do just love movies. I think it's, it's a great to see again, where movies have come from. And to me, it's always fun to watch movies and see like, Oh, this is a clear reference to bullet. Like, Oh, they're making again, homage or they're making a reference to bullet. Or when you see, you know, even cartoons like Archer, like how often is like, Archer making jokes about, again, the turtleneck, you know, black and blacker. Like, there's so much of it where it's like, I think culturally it's an important movie for you to have watched and experienced. And for that point, like sitting down and watching it, not like having it going on in the background. Like, I think it is a movie that it is definitely worth watching at least once. I would easily go back and watch this movie again if somebody wanted to watch it. I do very much enjoy it. It is one of those movies that if we're going to watch it, though, I want to I want to watch it. Like if somebody's going to sit there and talk through the whole thing, it's going to piss me off. Like this is a movie I want to sit down and enjoy because of how beautiful I think it is. Yeah, I, you bring up a, a great point by saying you have to really sit down and watch it because even I slogging through it missed some of the details that you brought up in the podcast, like the stuff with the orange shoes, like it it rewards a close watch it's just if if you feel that the movie is tedious in the first 20 minutes that's probably how you're going to feel throughout so uh yeah i think it's it's an important building block for cinema history and if that's important to you definitely see it it's it is a movie that you have to put your your time machine hat on for cuz you have to realize like we've always said, there's stuff that's come out since us that's much better. I think the exception with this movie is, I still think this movie is very good. And even though things have done it better, I st- like you said, it's a building block. Like It's important to realize where it came from and, and why it's done the way it is. Because I think this movie is just so influential on how things were done beyond it. Yeah, and last thought, you just because you mentioned you had a bullet poster. I've got a poster of Michael Mann's Heat, but... I think it's important to realize that Heat and many other movies would not exist the way they do if if Bullet didn't lay some sort of groundwork that was later approved upon. So. Well, hell, we didn't even bring it up. The whole airport chase. I thought, I'm like, is Heat, is the whole Heat airport chase, again, an homage to Bullet? You know? Because it's, I'm like, the whole time I'm watching, I'm like, Heat did this bet. Heat did the airport chase better, but Bullet did it first. Like, and again, it is one of those things, like, is this a, we're like, how inf- like this is my love letter to Bullet because as a director, as a screen, like how much it influenced me in the directing and me wanting like this was the movie that made me want to get into movies. So this is my love letter to Bullet is to make the final confrontation on an airport, you know? 
Yeah, that, and I mean, like you said, even if stuff was not done intentionally, some things Bullet just nailed the first time that it just kind of became shorthand. Um, you know, a showdown at the airport. Hey, I'm not saying Bullet created it, but it certainly, again, laid a blueprint that people improved upon. Mm-hmm. So... Alrighty, with that, I think that concludes not only this episode, but this trilogy. Uh, we'll be doing a wrap-up soon just to kind of compare our three movies, which was Drive, Gone in 60 Seconds, and Bullet. I can't wait to hear how that episode goes. Uh, and then beyond that, our next trilogy, I believe, is we're doing a sci-fi trilogy, which is going to do a couple things for us. Uh, beyond just we we are sci-fi junkies, we're going to do that. It's also going to add a new category into the chop shop so instead of it just being the five that we have now which i believe are family friendly comedy oscar bait blockbuster horror i guess it's six and miniseries we're now going to add a seventh which is sci-fi so i'll kind of have a little more diversity to that pool when we're making our chop shops but uh, travis unfortunately i can only remember one of the movies we're planning on doing which is brazil what were the other two uh, 2017's Life with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Ryan Reynolds. And did we agree that the third would be Southland Tales? I, I thought we, we... I don't what? think so. I think we... It might be one where we, we have to... We'll surprise you with the third one because I don't <laughs> think it was that. I remember Life in Brazil. We'll get back to you on the third one. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Brad, I, uh, you know, I'd like to leave with a, a line from the movie and uh, I, I've got one from Chalmers and I pause the movie because I don't even know if I'm smart enough to actually tell what he's trying to say. <laughs> you, do you remember this line where he says, I do not choose to have people accuse me of false promises for the sake of cheap sensationalism or to be compromised by your lieutenant? The fuck is he saying? I have to think it has to do with Bullet saying he's going to figure out the case. Like, Bullet needs the time to, to figure it out. Like, he's got a lead that he's he's chasing down, and that Chalmers is basically like, I don't believe you actually have a lead. Like, I need this wrapped up now so that I can move on. But to your point, yes, it is a very, very wordy way of saying whatever the fuck he's trying to say. <laughs> Which is about 90% of his dialogue in this movie, yeah. but I thought it was delightful. Bye. You waved at the camera like people could see you wave goodbye, by the way. I mean, that was for you, Brett. I, I don't oh, really that was appreciate for, oh. our private lives being drug out here on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's cute. Mm -hmm. As you ruined my whole I don't know bit, but that's fine. Okay, whatever. <laughs> believe yours was a uh, miniseries. And, and you, you get mad at me for waving, but... When you do your little, I don't remember what your topic is, you do it with your expression, too. It's a whole performance, Brett. And you know people can't see I'm you, a, either. I'm a, I'm a method actor, okay? God damn it. Bye. Again. <laughs> you keep saying double sink, and I keep thinking of, you can't triple stamp a double stamp. Mr. Mayor, I, I I completely understand. I'm 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 sorry. I'm I'm not. Now my script is too small and I can't read it. <laughs> and even it. Why are you laughing? <laughs> I just.
Oh, I love the guy that you're quoting from the movie Chalmers. I love his whole performance, but goddamn, is he a wordy son of a bitch. Can I just say, you delivered the word literally about six different ways, so I'm very curious. You're going to be the <laughs> so director. Which one I yeah, which, which shot you want to use? Yeah, literally, 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 literally. Yeah, my, uh, can you still hear me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my video's frozen. Are you getting my video anymore? No, it's frozen for me, too. Hmm. Should I turn it off and turn it back on again?